Welcome to Pursuing Justice. It's great to have you with us today. I'm Harriet Hendel. The last time we were together, we met the writers of the play The Exonerated. That was Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. We're continuing the theme of exoneration this month with our guest, Christine Bunch. It's rare for a woman to be exonerated. The fact is, in the last 30 years, only 226 women fit into that category. On the National Registry of Exonerations, which I bring up all the time, it's such a great website, there have been 2,754 people freed since 1989 when they began keeping records. But most of these are men. Women account for 10% of the 2.3 million people behind bars, and most incarcerated women are mothers. 40% of female exonerees were convicted of harming their child or a child in their care, and 11 women have been exonerated due to DNA. False or misleading forensic evidence contributed to the wrongful conviction of 84 women who have since been exonerated. And all those facts came from a post on the Innocence Project website in March of 2020. Let's meet our guest, Christine Bunch. So glad you are with us today, Christine. Welcome. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I'd like you to tell us what happened back in 1995 you were just 21 years old at the time, and you were charged with arson and felony murder. That's correct. I um, was a single mom working and going to school, and I woke up one morning and discovered my home was on fire. I couldn't get in to my son's room, and so I ran outside to get help, and I'm screaming for my neighbors. And I took Tony's tricycle and busted out his bedroom window and tried to climb into the window to get him. My neighbors pulled me out and told me I had to wait for the firefighters to get there. I tried to run back in the front door and they held me back because by this time the flames were going through the roof. I waited until Paramedics and firefighters got there, and then I was placed into an ambulance. And I, of course, am thinking everything's going to be fine. They're just going to have to, you know, give him some oxygen, and he's going to be okay. You don't ever, you don't ever think the worst. And um, when my neighbor got in the ambulance, I asked, did they, did they get him? And he said, yes, they've got him. And I was fine at that moment because I thought, okay, we're both going to the hospital. They're going to take care of everything. It's going to be okay. It wasn't until I got to the hospital and my dad was waiting for me. And I started telling him, you know, that I wanted to be in the same room as Tony. And I could just stay right there and take care of him until he was ready to go home. And my dad was the one that broke the news to me that, Tony had perished. Wow. And what happened 
after that. Well, he had no sooner got those words out of his mouth, and I had a police officer in there asking to take my statement. Hmm. And, of course, I, I wanted to give my statement. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. And my dad stepped up and said, no, she hasn't even been admitted to the hospital yet. You need mm. to wait. And so I was admitted to the hospital, given oxygen, treated for some burns and some cuts on my feet. And two hours later, that officer was back along with two detectives to tell me that, you know, they had determined that the fire was an arson and couldn't have been anything but. And they wanted to know who of my family and friends could have got in there and done that. Hmm. How did they determine that fast? I mean, there's hardly any time between the fire and you're saying just, you know, you're in the hospital a couple hours later. How did they determine that so quickly? Well... The training for arson investigators way back when was you learn from the previous fire investigator on the job. So it wasn't really a scientific method that was used. They would go in and take a look at what was left from the fire. And based on what they determined were poor patterns and V patterns and concrete spalling and alligatoring, they would look at those signs and say that it was an arson without any testing to back it up. So they asked you the question, who had done this, and what was your answer? My answer was I didn't know anybody that would have done that, but I was happy to tell them who could have, you know, came into my house. And essentially I took every single person that was in my hospital room trying to be there for me and supporting me, and I named him as a suspect. Who, who did you name as a suspect? Uh, my mom, my dad, my brother. Oh, I see. I mean, you know, they ask who would have had access. Oh, I see. It wasn't so much um, that they yeah. were calling him suspects, but the minute that I said, you know, these people have access, and they could have gotten in there, then in my mind, they're a suspect. All right, so were all of those people questioned? No. Not at that time. So where then did... I, I want to follow the trail of this investigation and, of course, how it ended up with you being... The, uh, the the prime suspect. So what happened after that? Well, after that, I was, I was very uncomfortable in the hospital room with, you know, all these people around. I'm, I'm in shock. I'm emotional, and I'm trying to process everything. Right. So I said to my neighbor, and um, Tom was also Tony's babysitter. He would watch him while I went to work in school. I said that I wanted to leave the hospital and get away from them. And I said, if you don't mind, I want to go be in Tony's playroom. 
And so he helped me get released from the hospital, and I went over to his house and sat in Tony's playroom because I just, I just wanted to be around something that I could hold on to. Right. So I sat in there for hours, and um, at 11 o'clock that night, Tom opened up the door and said that the police were asking if I could be brought to the station. And I said, yes, I'm, I'm willing to go. So I went barefoot and in some borrowed clothes because I literally lost everything, including the most important thing, my child. And when I got in there, they put me in a room with these three detectives and they started talking to me about insurance. And my first thought was they've discovered that I don't have insurance on my car because it was destroyed in the fire. And so I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I should have insurance on my car, but I just couldn't afford it. And I felt like I was being careful. And he looked at me and he said, no. He said, I'm talking about homeowner's insurance and life insurance. And it just struck me, and I started I started laughing at him. I was like, you just heard me say I couldn't afford insurance on my car. You think my home's insured? No, it's not. And my, my son's three. He's three. I don't need life insurance on him. I don't even have life insurance. I'm just, you know, 20. I, you know, you get those things when you're older. Yeah. So... Um, he said, well, he said, if there's, you know, a boyfriend, somebody that didn't want your son around, just, just tell me. And I was like, no, there's, there's nothing like that. And he said, no, he said, you can just tell me what was the reasoning. And I said, there was no reason. And of course I'm getting loud and screaming at them that, you know, there's, there's nothing. I have nothing. There's nothing you could possibly want for me. And, um, my mom and Tom opened up the door and said, we're taking her home now. And um, so Tom had reached out and called my mom and said they had pulled me in. And we left. And the next day, those detectives followed me along with my parents over to the funeral, the funeral directors so that we could plan the funeral and then they followed me to the store so I could buy an outfit to bury my son in. And I thought that that would, that would be the end of it. They would just, you know, stop. They would see that I'm just trying to, I'm trying to do what's right for Tony. And instead they showed up at his funeral service and at the cemetery. Oh so it was at the cemetery that I said, what what can I do to make you just stop? I don't want to see you anymore. I don't, I don't want to think about it. I just want to stop seeing you. And so they asked me to take a polygraph. Hmm. And I agreed because sure. I said, you know, that's what innocent people do. And after the polygraph? After the polygraph, the polygraph was actually the, the shortest 
polygraph, I think, in history. He asked me three questions and then took everything off of me and said, you know, I know that you did this and I know that you were guilty. And I looked at him and said, I don't know that I did this and I don't know that I'm guilty and I've got nothing to say to you. And he said, you can just go ahead and confess. You can go ahead and tell me. That's that's outrageous that someone is supposed to be the administrator of a polygraph and is in essence, made up their mind already. Yes. Okay. So, all right, after the polygraph... I was immediately arrested and charged with murder and arson. So began a, a, a very long saga, right? Yes. So tell us about... So that was... I think your trial was, um, this occurred in 1995, but the, the trial was 1996. Is that accurate? Yes, February of 96. 96. And who did you get to represent you, you know, given you certainly were not able to hire, you know, a, 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 an expensive lawyer? I had a public defender. And how, what did you feel about the public defender? How, how good was the defense? Well, I received a letter that I had uh, a court-appointed public defender, and um, it was probably two and a half weeks after that I received that letter that I wrote the judge and told him that I still hadn't seen my court-appointed public defender, and I wanted to know if he could appoint somebody else because obviously, you know, this guy wasn't working. And, and what was the result of, did you um, get? Someone? The result was that the public defender come over there and said, you know, there's, there's nothing to do right now. He said, um, I said, well, what about bond? Can I bond out? And he said, no. He said, we have to wait for the test results from the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Mm -hmm. And I said, what test results? And he said, well, they're, they're testing for gasoline. And I said, gasoline? And he said, yeah, you had a one-gallon gas can next to your lawnmower outside. And mm -hmm. I said, yeah, because it, it goes in the lawnmower. And he said, no, they think that's the accelerant that was used. Mm -hmm. oh, I see. And, so, and did, did they test for gasoline? They did test for gasoline. The results came back a few weeks later, and um, there was no gasoline found. Mm-hmm. They said that um, their whole theory had been based on that, so the judge granted me bond. I see. So you were able to leave for until the uh, trial began. Is that how that That's worked? Correct. And what was what was the uh, the space of time until the tri the actual trial started? Um, three months. Oh boy, three months. And and the trial was it fairly rapid in terms of, of uh, you know how it went, or was it a prolonged uh, trial? And in front of a jury? It was in front of a jury. My trial lasted a week, and um, I mean it was it was fairly rapid. 
basically um, the state of Indiana, you don't have to prove a motive for a murder. So they could never find a reason that I would do this. I wasn't dating anybody at the time. There was no money. There was no life insurance. There was no motive. Right. right. So the other piece of evidence they had was the report from alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which said they had found traces of a heavy petroleum distillate. They couldn't identify it, but they found it in the wood flooring in the living room, and they found a sample in my son's bedroom. So pretty much when the chemist from the ATF said that, I, I knew I was going to be found guilty. I'm, I'm a mom. You can't hear that and sit on a jury and acquit. You just can't. And um, the firefighter that went in and got Tony changed his statement two weeks before trial. He had said initially that he went over a ceiling joist that had fallen down in the middle of the wall. And that's how he got in the bedroom. During their investigation, they thought they were going to find that his door was closed. And then they realized that there wasn't a door on his bedroom at all. So the fireman changed his story to say he had to go over a chair that I had shoved in the doorway to trap my son in there. So, so incredible that, that it could turn like that when they had so little to go on. So you were found guilty, and what was your sentence? I was found guilty, and um, what a lot of people didn't know was that I was, I was pregnant with my second child. And my judge said that I had broken the most sacred trust there is, that between a mother and a child that I had actually gotten myself impregnated in order to get sympathy from the court and that I was going to receive none, that I would never see that child. He would become an automatic ward of the state and I would never know what happened to him. And then he sentenced me 60 years for the murder, 50 for the arson, and he ran them concurrently. It's, it's just overwhelming to think of what you must be must have been feeling at the time um was there any thought that you were going to be able to turn that verdict around i don't i don't think at that time that was that was my thought process my my main thought was the only reason that i was still alive and still fighting was because I was pregnant (laughs) and that is what was keeping me going so the thought that I would never know what happened to my baby that was the overwhelming part not the going to prison Mm -hmm. and what did happen to that baby well the judge despite everything he said did not put in an order to take my son, so I was free to give him to my family. My kid brother was 17 at the time, and he quit school and started working three jobs, and my mother 
my mother was disabled and she helped my brother take care of my son. I see. Oh. So the judge did not get his way, at least no, he there. At, at least there. But but then um, you're facing this long sentence and and not certainly knowing if there was ever going to be a chance to to turn it around or to overturn it, I, I guess I should say. Um, so how how did that happen? Uh, we we have we have a few minutes left of this segment, and uh, I do know you're going to come back um, and we're going to talk some more about other topics. But I definitely, of course, for our listeners, want you to finish telling us uh, your story. And if we if we need to uh, finish it in, uh, you know, next time you're here, that's that's perfectly fine. So, uh, what? happened that you got some help with this case so that you could um, uh, envision freedom? Well, I, of course, I do what everybody does. I wrote letters begging people to help me. And I was, you know, going to school, working in a law library, trying to learn everything I could about fire science. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the girls was kind to me and introduced me to her public defender in Indianapolis, and she agreed to take on my case, and I paid her out of my state pay each month, which was only 30 or $40. She looked over my case, told me she believed me. She didn't know how in the hell we were going to prove it, and I said, we'll prove it. I just need somebody to believe me. So that started it, and in 2006, I had been incarcerated at that time about 10 years. The Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University came onto my case, and they're part of the Innocence Organization, and we started talking about fire science and how it related to my case because I felt like there were things wrong with my case. What, what specifically, um, in the few minutes we have, when you say, I felt there was something wrong with my case, what, what do you mean? Well, in 2001, I received an article saying that burn patterns, pore patterns, concrete spalling, blistering, alligatoring, all those things were now myths hmm. of arts and science. And I said, well, if it's a myth, I was convicted on that. That's right. So I said, you know, there has to be some kind of proof. And I had befriended a fire captain. His wife was was in there with me. And he explained to me that um, the ATF stating that the sample could not be identified wasn't true. It could be identified. You just had to get the raw data. Mm. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so, the Center for Wrongful Conviction in Chicago, they were the key players in um, overturning the guilty verdict? Yes. Them, along with um, Ron Safer, who's at um, Riley Safer at Homes in Kinsella, they came on to underwrite the cost 
for my oh. fire investigators because it's very expensive. Yeah. Whenever you bring an expert in, whatever expert that is, it's that's that's what shoots up the cost of uh, you know of a trial. All right, we we are just about out of time for today, but I'm delighted that you're willing to come back and I'd like you to you know tell us how how it happened that you did get out. And then I know you have other things that you very much want to share with us. So um, I appreciate your time today and, and your willingness to tell us your story. And um, we will wrap it for today and, and see you next time. Thank you, Christine. Thank I can't you. wait. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. So uh, stay with us, please. Um, and tune in next time for Pursuing Justice. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.